So one of the ways that you can tell that a church has really good fellowship and does life together really well is when uh, there's a sickness, everybody in the church gets it. And it, it seems like we've, uh, we're certainly going through that where um, the last two or three weeks, there's multiple families missing each week. As I mentioned, I was sick last week. Uh, and we have multiple kids who were gone and missing. Um, but I want to thank you for at least being wise and courteous enough to stay at home when you are feeling sick, because we certainly don't want to spread it around to everybody. But uh, it, it is nevertheless a good sign that we just love doing life together. And I'm just thankful that I'm not being blamed for being ground zero of this round of sickness as I was a couple of years ago, I remember I, I, a lot of people were pointing their fingers at me for coming when I probably should have stayed home. So we're, we're learning our lesson as a church to love each other from a distance when we're sick. Um, but I'm glad you're here this morning, and I'm glad, hopefully, that you're feeling well, because today is a very, very important day, um, not just because it's the Lord's Day and we're here to worship and fellowship together, but because we get to celebrate uh, baptism today. And baptisms are just a, a very crucial and exciting and awesome thing in our faith. And it's something that we do that is uniquely Christian. And if you're an outsider looking in and you see the act of baptism, you might think, what a weird ritual that is. But to us, it is a life-giving, life-altering, awesome ritual that we do based off of our faith and based off of the instructions of Christ. And so I rejoice and I celebrate on this day. And normally we go through uh, books of the Bible. We are currently in 2 Corinthians, working through that book. But for Baptism Sunday, I like to take a break and I like to go over the meaning of baptism. And there's only so much you can go over so for some of you, this might seem repetitive, but I think repetition is good, particularly when it comes to important doctrines such as baptism. Because even as a pastor who is constantly in the Word of God uh, throughout the week and constantly studying these things, I tend to forget as well. I mean, reviewing the, this sermon, reviewing the material, there's things where I'm like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So it is good to remember. We are a people who are easy uh, to forget. And so I want to encourage you as you uh, hear the word of God this morning, as you hear about baptism, to really just approach baptism anew this morning and really just be built up by the word of God and be encouraged by what we witness here today because this is a cause for celebration. Let's say a word of prayer and then we'll learn all that we need to know about baptism. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good. You are love. You are truth. Everything about you is everything that we need. Without you, we are lacking. With you, God, we are content. Everything that you have is sufficient for us for salvation and righteous living. And so, God, we rejoice in you. We lift our eyes to you alone. We bend our knee to you alone. God, help us to follow you in a way that is pleasing to you. Help us individually, convict us where we need to change, 
support us where we're doing it right. Help us as a church body, Lord, to, to live in unity and to sanctify one another in your truth. Your word is truth. Father, I thank you so much for changing us, for saving us, for dying on the cross, that your death is enough. What a joy it is to have the hope of heaven in our hearts. I pray that lives are changed today. I pray as we witness baptism, as we learn about it, Lord, that God, all of our lives are better than when we woke up this morning on account of your truth and the Holy Spirit that's within us. Uh, thank you, Father, for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as I mentioned, at the end of the sermon, we will be witnessing the joy of water baptism. Uh, but before this happens, it is crucial that we all understand what baptism means. Uh, first of all, words matter. The words that we use matter in our daily lives, as we discuss with one another in our fellowship, in our society. The words that we use matter. The problem is we, we live in a very relativistic society that has the audacity or believes that we can determine the definitions of words how we see fit or how we feel. And this is why you find when a lot of people have conversations, they begin by defining their terms. Because your term or your definition of a word might be different than my definition. So if we're going to see eye to eye, then, then we have to define what do you mean by that word? In fact, we've seen people have invented their own meaning of words that have been well established for 2,000 years in our culture today. For example, people have hijacked the words love, marriage, hate, gender, woman, what is a woman, and so forth. And people have taken these words, hijacked them, and implemented their own custom definition. And so when you get together with people, you're not sure what they mean by love. You're not sure what they mean by woman or by marriage. In fact, uh, you're probably aware of the fact that there's legislation coming down trying to fundamentally redefine on a federal level the term marriage, where for thousands of years it has simply meant one man one woman entering into a covenant relationship together. But now our country wants to fundamentally change that definition. And so the beautiful thing about Scripture and why it is a solid rock and a solid foundation for us and for our faith is that God does not change his terms. Is that the word that he has given us as we study his word we can stand upon the rock of his firm foundation, not just of what the Bible says and what it means, but also the very words themselves. That his words are not shifty and fluid, but they're solid. And so when we're looking for truth, we can look to the scripture and we can rely on the fact that it is the same truth here as it is over in a different country. It's the same truth today as it was 2,000 years ago. And when God speaks, he says what he means, and he means what he says. And so I want to begin by first looking at the word baptism, not to tell you what baptism means to me, but to tell you 
what God means by baptism. And we're going to look specifically at the Greek word used for baptism, which there's uh, multiple variations of the word baptism, but ultimately it's baptizo, bapto, baptismos. And this word and its derivatives can be defined as to dip or immerse, especially into liquid. And the term was both used in literal and very practical ways, but also was used in figurative ways or to explain spiritual truths. And so, first of all, let's look at the literal and the practical use of the word baptizo. So this word would have been used in practical scenarios such as dyeing fabric, cooling forged metal in water, or when a ship was sinking. So the word baptizo, if you were dyeing fabric, that's the word that would have been used and people would have understood what it meant. So the verb in Greek was used to describe the action of submerging something into something else and especially a liquid, and especially with the intention or the byproduct of changing that thing. There was usually always some kind of a change that occurred when that thing was submerged into the liquid or the substance. Now, I don't know a whole lot about dyeing fabric. I don't know a whole lot about forgery. Maybe some of you do. And uh, I've never been in a shipwreck, or I don't really study ancient shipwrecks. But what I do know about are Oreos. Can anybody else relate with Oreos? And how many of you dunk your Oreos into milk when you eat them? A lot of you. Have any of you tried dunking your Oreos into peanut butter? Oh, only a few of you. I would highly encourage you to baptize your Oreos in peanut butter. So good. But as, as, you, as you look at that scenario which many of us are familiar with, what happens and why do we dip Oreos into milk? Because it sort of changes the properties of the Oreo a little bit. I mean, the Oreo in and of itself is awesome. But when you put the Oreo in milk, it's awesomer. Makes it a little bit more softer. Also, it adds a little bit of a milk flavor to it. But you see the point I'm trying to make is that baptizo is the idea of taking something dipping it into another thing, and it comes out different. And so that was the practical, uh, fundamental, literal use of that word. And it didn't even have to do with anything religious. Uh, It could mean something very practical, separate from religion. But then, of course, that word got to be used in figurative, metaphorical, or even idiom-type ways to symbolize biblical truth. So Bible authors use this common practical verb figuratively as a way to explain regeneration or becoming born again. So for example, Paul spoke of our baptism into Christ in Romans 6, 3 through 4. He said, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
So in order to explain what it means for us to be born again, Paul was using this very practical term so that people who understood that practical term would then understand what is happening to the believer as God causes them to be born again. That rather than being dipped in milk like an Oreo, we are rather dipped into death or dipped into Christ, and then we come out a brand new creation. We are buried, we are baptized by death, and we are then born again into a new creation. And so by using the common practical verb, he explained a spiritual truth, and this is common throughout Scripture. So it's important when we look at this term, at this word, that we understand its meaning, because there is really only one meaning for baptize, and... God forbid that we take that term and we hijack it and we develop our own unique definitions because then you would miss the whole point throughout Scripture. This is why it's important that we understand what the Bible means when it says baptism and also what it means when it says marriage, what it means when it says woman, because if you change those definitions, you fundamentally change the the Bible altogether. If you don't get the, the purpose of marriage then you will totally miss Ephesians 5.22. If you try and exchange a man and a woman uh, within within the formula of marriage that God created, then the entire theology of, of the Bible breaks down. And you will miss how Christ, how Christ is the husband figure and how the church is the bride and how Christ as the husband laid his life down and how, church, the bride, we submit to Christ. You miss the whole picture if you change the definition. And so it's important that we understand that baptize, according to Scripture, in its most fundamental definition, means to be fully immersed into water and to be changed. So now that we have that definition locked in, let's look at the theology of baptism. Let's have a understanding of what it means beyond its definition. In the Old Covenant, you will not find, in the Old Testament or Old Covenant, you will not find the ceremony of baptism as we know it today uh, described. But the Levite priests in Israel, they did perform cleansing rituals with water, and they washed, which laid the foundation for some of the, the theological meaning of water baptism. But more than this, though, the New Testament authors confirm that certain events in the Old Testament, certain narratives that that occurred throughout Israel's history, were a foreshadowing of what baptism would mean for us today. And I'm going to begin with looking at the flood, for example. And by the way, this is not an exhaustive study. I'm not going to bring up every single scenario or foreshadowing, but these are the big ones. The flood, for example, Peter... In his first epistle, uh, 1 Peter 3, 20 through 21, writes, When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal from dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So just as God... With the floodwaters, purified mankind, destroyed every 
person, everything on earth except for eight souls and the two-by-two two animals which were on board, God was purifying the earth. And out of that flood came a new relationship, the covenant that he made with Noah to populate the earth. So the same thing as water baptism as we honor, when you go down into the water, all the evil, all the filth, all those things are purified and washed away. And as you come out of the water, then you are a new creation. Everything changes. And so Peter picked up on this foreshadowing in the flood. But also we find there's foreshadowing in the Exodus as well. In the Exodus account, which many of, many of you know, Israel were slaves to Egypt. And through God and through his servant Moses, Israel escaped captivity. They went down into the Red Sea, and they came out the other side, a free people who were destined for the promised land. And so when you look at that entire epic narrative of Israel's history and their captivity with uh, Egypt and then their freedom, this is also a foreshadowing of baptism. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 2 says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So in the same way that Israel were, were captive, were held captive by Egypt, and Egypt can symbolize sin, on one, one bank or one side of the sea, and then God parted the waters and they went down under sea level and they came across the other side, free people. Baptism is the, the spiritual event that's, that was symbolized in that exodus. As you go down into the water, you are leaving that bank of captivity where you are captive to your sin, not free from your sin. You go down into the water and then you come back out the other side, free from the captivity of sin and with the promise and the hope of, prom of your promised land, which is heaven in the future. And so in that way, the authors, Paul in 1 Corinthians, he picked up on that foreshadowing in the Exodus. And the last example I want to use, the last foreshadowing from the Old Testament is from Jonah. If you remember, Jonah was the most reluctant prophet who gave the shortest sermon for conversion ever with the Ninevites. You, you guys should probably be, believe in Jesus or believe in God or else you're going to be destroyed. That's, that was pretty much his sermon. It was like a one-sentence sermon, and many people come to church like hoping for a one-sentence sermon. But he was doing this because he didn't want the Ninevites to believe, right? So God, in order to influence Jonah to go and preach this sermon, we all know what happens. He was thrown overboard. He was swallowed by a great fish. And then God had the fish spit him out onto land. Uh, God is very um, convincing, when he wants you to do something, he can be very convincing. And he wanted Jonah uh, to go preach to the Ninevites. So Jonah 2, 5 through 6, Jonah recounts his ordeal with the great fish. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. So we think about our lives before Christ. We think about the tension, the chaos, 
the turmoil, the addiction to sin. We can feel like Jonah with the waters closing in all over me. But through his baptism in the fish, as he was spit out, he had a new life, a new motivation, a new desire to follow God. And this is why in Luke eleven thirty two, Jesus declares that something greater than Jonah is here. Because as great as the old covenant was and is, Christ is greater. The new covenant, as we were reading in 2 Corinthians, is superior to the old covenant because the new covenant is the fulfillment of the old. The people who read these stories, they didn't know that it could apply to them as well. As we read these stories as followers of Christ, we know that it applies to every single one of us. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you can have this Exodus experience. You can have this flood experience. You can have this Jonah experience through baptism in Jesus Christ, where you will be made brand new. And so we see the value of baptism even as early as the Old Covenant. And this is ultimately what developed and formed into the practice of water baptism as we will observe today. But we see this as early as the New Covenant. In fact, when you look at uh, the 400-year period after the prophet Malachi, we see there was a 400-year period where God went silent. He was not speaking to his people. And the people struggled. They struggled. They, they came under uh, new captivity, new stress. But then all of a sudden, in the wilderness, there was this voice crying out for people to come and be baptized and to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so consider in Acts 19, 3 through 7, where it says, into what then were you baptized? They said, we were baptized into John's baptism. So some people went out into the desert, they were baptized by John for repentance, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And John himself, when he spoke of his baptism, and he spoke of the baptism that would come through Christ, he even said himself in Luke 3.16, says, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So here you have the practical act of water baptism, and then you have John alluding to the fact that when Christ comes, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's keep walking through. So let's look at Jesus' baptism. So what's different about Jesus' baptism? So after Jesus started his ministry, he began preaching about the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he kept calling on people to be born again. And this caused many people confusion, even those who were Pharisees and who were well-versed in the scriptures. They couldn't understand, what does Jesus mean by be born again? What does he mean by the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Well, let's consider John's interaction with Nicodemus. John 3, 1 through 8 tells us there was a man of the Pharisees 
named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came, by Jesus, uh, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born where he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of, of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so after this interaction with Nicodemus, the Bible says that Jesus and his disciples then went from there into the Judean countryside, and they were baptizing under this premise of you must be born again. The kingdom of God is at hand. So what are the elements of Jesus' baptism? They're a combination of both literal water and the Holy Spirit, supernatural. So what is the baptism then of the Holy Spirit? We're familiar with what baptism of water is. We've all seen baptisms happen. People go down into the water, they come out. But what is really happening when you pull back the curtain? What is God doing to people through baptism? Well, it all begins in the Old Testament. He, God tells us what is happening. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So when Jesus spoke to, to Nicodemus, his words were no, no doubt meant to stir the mind of Nicodemus towards this idea of a priestly ceremonial cleansing that you'll be cleansed from your sin, and that you will now walk according to God's word. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is God's action within us. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that God alone does to change us. It has nothing to do with what you have decided to, to do. It has everything to do with what God has decided to do in you. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is God's action in us and is what saves us. And it is the baptism of water that expresses externally what God has done to us internally. So water baptism is a manifestation of a supernatural truth that has happened inside of us. Consider the work of God. At the moment of conversion... Every true believer becomes born again and is given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We refer to this as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this precedes every water baptism. <clears throat> so someone can confess and believe in Jesus Christ. Maybe they have an interaction with a, 
a believer, and that believer leads them in the Lord's Prayer. They believe and decide to give their life to Christ, and on the spot, they are baptized by the Holy Spirit, and they are saved, they are born again, they are made new. We see this example on the cross, where the thief on the cross expressed faith in Christ. He confessed a faith in Christ, and did Jesus say, well, first, you need to get down off that cross, we need to do a baptism ceremony, and then you will truly be saved. No. He said, thief, today you will be with me in paradise without any type of water baptism. This was the work of God. It is God who saves, not the water. The water symbolizes the fact that God saves. So if you give your life to Christ and you, you're driving and you're rejoicing and you're on your way to church and you suddenly get hit by a, a semi-truck, lights out, you're done, you're dead. God has the power to save you before you make it to the baptism waters. But the point is you were on your way. You were taking that step of faith. Because we know that it's God's grace that saves us. It's not our works. It's not our effort. It's not us climbing into the water that saves us. It's God reaching down into your heart and saving you. This is why we read in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. My friends, baptism is a sign of humility, of you responding to what God has already done. And you might say, well, as soon as I'm belie I believe, should I be baptized? And the answer is ultimately yes, as soon as possible. Don't wait. We have water right here. Why not be baptized? Do you believe? Take that step of faith and respond to what God has done to you as soon as possible. And then we also see this language, for example, in John's words, he tells us that Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit, which we just talked about, and with fire. What does that mean? Does that mean that tongues are going to come down, suddenly you're going to start acting all crazy? I don't think so. We, we do know that there was that example in Acts at Pentecost where God was demonstrating the new covenant of his faith, the, the birth of the church through these miraculous works. What I think John is talking about is the fire of persecution. Because what happens when you take a step of faith publicly in Jesus' name? You will most certainly face backlash, persecution, trials. You might even be martyred for your faith. This is what Jesus promises. If you follow me, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So if baptism is a public confession of faith, this is you stepping out and making yourself available to be a vessel of God who will endure the fires of persecution in order to complete his purposes. Because there's a lot of people who like to check the box on the survey that says, I'm a Christian. There's a lot of people at Thanksgiving dinners just to appease a legalistic aunt will say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. There's a lot of people who will wear that label, but who don't really step out in faith when it counts. 
There are people like Peter, for example, when they're challenged and they're threatened with being arrested, will say, oh, I don't know Jesus. I never knew him. I don't know him. I'm not a Christian. I'm not like those guys. Nope, nope. But when you step out in faith to be baptized, this is you unapologetically, fearlessly, boldly saying, I am a follower of Jesus and I accept everything that comes along with that, even your hatred. Because I will share my faith with the world because Christ has saved me and I love you and I want him to save you too. And you might kill me for it, but your life, your eternal soul is worth it. So here I am, Lord, send me. And if I die, I die. So I believe that baptism along with it comes that risk or that threat of fire or persecution. And so that's the question you have to ask yourself. Are, are you ready for that? Because that's a telltale sign that you've truly been changed if you're willing to take that bold step, that public step of faith. Now, baptism ultimately is expected of all true believers. It was the expectation of Christ and therefore the expectation of this church that all who claim to have a true confession of faith will be baptized or will have been baptized. Because again, it's an outward expression of what Christ has done in your heart. And if you're not willing to confess publicly that you are a follower of Christ, then the genuineness of your faith comes into question. Because how could you hide such a treasure? How could you keep that secret? How could you not want to risk everything, life and livelihood, to follow the one who saved your soul? And so every true believer, not might be, but will be baptized as a demonstration of their faith. Because you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth publicly that Jesus is Lord. And the two go hand in glove. If you have been born again, you will live like it. And the first step of obedience in your Christian life should be baptism. That should be the very first thing you do. If you skip that step, you've skipped the most fundamental, the biggest priority of your walk of faith. And if you refuse to be baptized by water for whatever reason, then you are living in disobedience to God, you are living in sin, and your faith and salvation are in question. Consider Christ in his great commission who says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this is why baptism along with communion, communion is a continuation of fellowship. It is something that you continually do to demonstrate that you are a part of the body of Christ and that you are living for Christ continually. Baptism is the inauguration and communion is a continuance of your membership as a body of Christ, as a body member of Christ. I wanted to end on just uh, sharing five considerations for baptism. These are, these are often the, the common questions. You, you know when you're taking a survey or whatever, and at the bottom it says, commonly asked questions. So these five things will be some of the commonly asked questions that people have about baptism. 
Uh, throughout church history, a lot of people have made a big deal about, well, does it have to be full immersion or can, it, can we just sprinkle some water or, or par, pour a jar on somebody's head? Um, the mode of baptism, I don't think, is meant to be uh, an issue that divides the church. However, if we're going to honor God's definition or God's word of baptism, the actual definition means to be submerged into something. And when you see things like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, when they saw a body of water, they went down into the water, and then they came back out of the water. The common practice in Scripture is to be fully immersed into water. Now, are we going to be legalistic about this? No. For example, when we baptize today, if, if the baptismal is not full enough maybe, or, or maybe like a, a shoulder or a nose is still dry after, after the baptism, does this mean that the nose is not going to make it into heaven or the shoulder is not going to make it into heaven? Give me a break. No, the, the meaning of it, the significance of it is still being honored. Or what if there's somebody who's very old in age and who's incapable of climbing up the steps or in, incapable of, of doing the action of getting into the water? I think God is, is bigger than that situation. I think God will honor at least some kind of symbolism, pouring of water, sprinkling of water, things like that. And I think God will make exceptions in such cases so long as the meaning is preserved. But if you are fully capable, if you are fully able to, and there is a body of water that you can get into, bathtub, we've done horse troughs before, we've done very shallow creeks, we've done rivers, we've done lakes. If you have a body of water that you can get into, you should. And so that, whenever possible, immersion should be the mode in which is used. And that, that's what we honor here, uh, not legalistically. Also, second thing, be baptized as soon as possible. You know, sometimes people will say, well, or, well for example, uh, Shane was supposed to be baptized last week, but I got sick. And him and I have had uh, a lot of conversations, you know, over, over the last few months, and uh, it, it was really important for him to have, have me participate in that, and so we just put it off another week. Not a big deal. Or sometimes uh, people have wanted their family to be witnesses to their baptism, and so we'd schedule a month in advance. But, you know, if, if somebody is, being bor is born again, and they're excited, and they want to be baptized in the moment, uh, we will also do that because there's certainly a case for that throughout Scripture. And especially if you have listened here this morning and you understand the meaning of baptism and you truly believe that you have been born again, if you come up and you express that you understand, then we will baptize you today if that is truly what God is doing inside your heart. Kids, you know, are a little bit different. Uh, I do like to, you know, sometimes kids can get really excited about the moment. They like the idea of getting in the water and being a part of that, maybe being up in front of people and doing that. Uh, I've had that before. I, I will always have a discussion with the parents first. And actually, as a youth pastor, I kind of made the mistake of we were doing a baptism that was pre-planned, and one kid came up and said he wanted to be baptized, and we baptized him on the spot, and the parents were really upset that they couldn't be a part of witnessing that. And, you know, at, at the moment, I was just kind of a zealous youth pastor. I'm like, 
we're just, we're baptizing, we're doing the Lord's work, you know, it, it, it's, his, it's his baptism and all that, and, but as I've gotten older, I've understood just the importance of including family, including parents in those decisions, um, but ultimately, it's, it's the kid's faith, it's the kid's decision, they're, they're not going to piggyback off of their parents' faith, but I like, to, I like the parents to be involved, because a lot of times, parents can give insight into whether their faith is genuine or if they're just playing games. And so uh, I will always take an extra step of caution whenever kids come up wanting to be baptized. But if we can, we should be baptized as soon as possible. Third thing, once baptized, always baptized. So what this means is that baptism should be a one and done. If you genuinely were born again and you were baptized, there's no need for a second baptism. I've had people think that, well, Maybe I could be baptized kind of uh, like a John the Baptist type of baptism. You know, I've, I've sinned. I've strayed away from the faith. Maybe if I'm baptized, it'll be a, a, a renewal of my faith. It'll be a recommitment to, to God, recommitment to Christ. My friends, you have everything you need if you have the Holy Spirit within you to drop to your knees at any moment and to repent from your sins and to give your life to God fully. It doesn't require an act of baptism. That's the beauty and the joy of a relationship with Christ, is that if you have strayed from God, then right where you're at, when you recognize that, stop, drop to your knees and repent and recommit your life to him where you're at and tell somebody about it. But it doesn't require additional baptism. Also, as far as this idea of being baptized into a fellowship, um, I, I don't really find a, a case for that. You know, some might say, well, people were baptized into Moses. People were baptized into John and his ministry. People were baptized into Jesus' ministry. Well, guess what? We are still being baptized into Christ's ministry, which is far superior to labeling it as my ministry or his ministry or their ministry. We are all ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you were baptized once into Christ, then that is enough. You are in his ministry. However, there are times where people will say that they don't believe their first baptism was genuine. Maybe they were a kid and they were caught up in the moment and they just wanted to get in the water and they were baptized. I've had that a lot. Or I've had people come and say, I want to be baptized for real because the first time was not genuine. It was something else. And in those cases, yes, I do think you should truly commit your life to him through baptism as an adult. Also, there are times where maybe you got caught up in a cult. Maybe you were raised in a cult. Maybe you got stuck in a cult back in the 70s, and uh, you went through some kind of baptism ritual, but it wasn't of Christ. Then I would say, if you are truly born again in Christ, then yes, you should be baptized. There's a, a fine line between, you know, some people might be baptized as an adult in the Catholic Church, Perhaps that person's faith was genuine in the moment. They had a true belief and an understanding of Jesus uh, without all the other Catholic dogmas that stray from the truth. You know, I'd say in those kind of situations, I would ultimately leave it up to them. I would say, do you believe that your baptism was genuine, that your faith was genuine at the moment you were baptized? Yes. Well, then that's good enough for me. 
Also, fourth, there is no case for infant baptism. Um, talking about the Catholic Church. In some of their extra books that they consider to be scripture, which uh, the church does not, we do not, um, in those documents, there is, they make a case for baptizing or praying for the dead and also baptizing and praying for uh, the salvation of babies. I don't find a case for this in Scripture. But what I do appreciate is that parents who do have their children baptized as infants, you can't question their genuine love for their child because they just want their child to be saved. They just have a misunderstanding of what the Scripture says. And so I would never guilt trip or come down upon a parent who has had their their child or their baby baptized. However, I will expressly declare the truth of Scripture, which is that you need to be uh, you need to be baptized on your own will. That you you need to make that decision. Your parents can't make that decision for you. And so, without chastising parents, I would say if you were baptized as a baby, without your consent, I would say as an adult, you must be baptized on your own. And finally, our process of baptism here is that you must demonstrate an understanding of what baptism is, demonstrate an understanding of what Christ has done in you, that he is your Savior, you give a confession of faith. And again, I, I say to you, uh, today we will be baptizing somebody who has already gone through that process through discussions. But if you are here this morning, and you are deciding to give your life to Christ, or maybe you've been holding back on being baptized for a long time. Maybe you were baptized as a baby and you weren't aware that you should be baptizing as a consenting adult. I would encourage you to consider to be baptized today. Why wait? What are you waiting for? Because God is calling on you to give your life to him. Because Jesus is the Savior. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. You need him. And if you know that you know that you've been born again by Jesus Christ, the Savior, then it's time for you to stop playing games with your faith. And it's time for you to step out in boldness and in faith in him and demonstrate what he has done through water baptism. My friends, this is a change of life. As I talked about at the beginning, you go in and you come out changed. Christ changes us. And when you take that step of faith to serve him, to live for him, new and exciting and awesome things will present themselves in your life. You're not going to grow without it, and so I'd encourage you to do it.